0: SpyCops Info Podcast, a series on the secret undercover political police that spied on over 1,000 campaign groups since 1968. Episode 26, reporting on the Undercover Policing Inquiry, opening statements to Tranche 1, Phase 3.
1: Things will be a little different this week because the Undercover Policing Inquiry has started its third round of evidential hearings. Fourth round, if you count the closed hearings that were held in secret last year. This round of hearings will run until the 20th of May 2022, and the Spy Cops Info podcast crew are in London reporting it as it happens. You can hear them discussing each day's events weekdays live at 7pm and at various other points throughout the day via Tom Fowler's Twitter feed. The Campaign Opposing Police Surveillance and Police Spies Out of Lives are also there, providing coverage and live tweeting and regular reports with links to some of the most significant statements and evidence. These are being published on the website campaignopposingpolicesurveillance.com. To complement all that work, we will be producing short audio versions of the reporting, starting with the summaries of the opening statements from the inquiry and state and non-state core participants, which were presented live on the 9th, 10th and 11th of May. Video presentations of many of these statements were also published by the Inquiry, and if your interest is sparked by any of these summaries, you can find all the links on the Campaign Opposing Police Surveillance website. We begin with the opening statements. The opening statement from the Inquiry barrister was long and detailed, and for a large part it summarised some of the evidence that the Inquiry is releasing. Um, that it has studied in the run-up to these hearings. However, it did also highlight further disturbing evidence of the scale and extent of wrongdoing by these undercover units. In addition to the deliberate targeting of school children campaigning against the far right, which uh, seemingly happened at the behest of the security service and was uh, covered in the Guardian this week in some detail, Barr cited a special branch memo that shows that the police were involved in passing information about trade union activists to private companies. And he quoted, some employers plead to be given warning if known agitators seek or obtain employment with them. When a special branch officer is himself seeking help from an employer or from a union official, it is asking a good deal to expect him to insist invariably that he is engaged in one-way traffic. The inquiry also highlighted an MI5 report pointing out the dangers of vetting, also known as blacklisting. It said, the transmission of security information to an employing authority can have serious consequences for the person concerned, leading in extreme cases to purge from the civil service or in other cases to denial of access to classified information, which can have an adverse effect on the careers. Considerable attention was paid by Barr to the relationship between the Metropolitan Police's undercover political policing unit, the Special Demonstration Squad, and MI5. Though complex and changeable, the interaction was certainly involved, and it is clear that MI5 was highly information, influential on SpyCot's reporting and activities. Barr also cited Special Branch Annual Reports, noting that over 5,000 files were opened, mostly on individuals, and over a million entries were made in Special Branch files in 1979 alone. In his statement, he noted that the SDS reported on the activities of black justice campaigns and infiltrated far left groups, which, among other things, actively promoted racial equality. This SDS reporting on such matters formed part of a wider special branch interest in racial tension. Biles spent some time on the context of the SDS within Special Branch and how it related to the Security Service and the Home Office, including what defined the undercover unit's reason for existence, particularly the definition and interpretation of subversion. Although this was dry and historical, it will no doubt be of significance for placing any conceivable justification of the SDS in a wider context. In particular, Barr highlighted the kind of rhetoric that police spies have used about their targets, and he pointedly asked, Were revolutionaries behind and exploiting every public demonstration, pop festival, squat or sit-in? Or was Special Branch even allowing for risks to national security generated by the Cold War looking for reds under the bed? Was SDS reporting for public order purposes in all the circumstances really invaluable? He also summarised the results of recent secret closed hearings where the inquiry heard further evidence from undercover officers that included candid accounts of sexual relationships the officers had with their targets. Sex was referred to as an operational tactic and the recognition was uh, made that the women would not have consented if they had known they were sleeping with a police officer. There were also accounts that certain officers were known by their colleagues to be sexual predators. One undercover undermined the manager's position of claimed ignorance when he referred to Rick Gibson, who was known to have had multiple relationships while undercover, saying, Rick had a certain reputation and it gradually came out that he had had a sexual relationship which led to his being compromised. And that was, to my way of thinking, generally well known among the existing SDS officers. Finally, in recognition of the fact that the massive delays that have plagued the process have left victims without answers for too long. The inquiry announced their intention to produce an interim report at the end of this first tranche of evidence. The scope and timing of that report are still to be decided. After bar, we heard from the lawyers representing the Metropolitan Police and the coordinated group of ex-undercover officers who have their own separate legal representation. In surprisingly defensive and clearly coordinated opening statements, lawyers representing the Met and the designated lawyers for over 100 individual ex-undercover officers claimed that it would be, quote, unfair to judge the activities of the special demonstration squad without hearing from the officers and agents that the SDS was gathering intelligence for. Peter Skelton QC, who represented the Metropolitan Police Service, suggested the inquiry should not seek to establish whether the early years of police spying on political groups were justified at all, despite this being a key part of the Inquiry's terms of reference. He called it inherently problematic and unfair. However, he went on to say, if the Inquiry does intend to make findings about the justification and value of SDS deployments into specific groups or its reporting on specific individuals during the T1 period, then this can only be done fairly by asking former officers of Metropolitan's Police Special Branch's C-Squad, A8 Uniform Branch, And the security service directly to explain the justification for seeking intelligence on those groups and individuals and what value the resulting intelligence had to their work. They should also explain why intelligence needed to be sought using undercover deployments rather than by some other means. For example, open sources such as public meetings and publications or alternative closed sources such as informants and surveillance. This echoes the long-standing demands of campaigners and core participants for a fuller investigation into where ultimate responsibility for the activities of Britain's secret political police lies. However, it also reflects a recognition by police core participants in the inquiry that their undercover operations are difficult, if not impossible, to justify based on any of the evidence they have been able to provide so far. It seems they now wish to imply that they were just following orders and to pass the buck for decision making and justification of the operations further up the chain. Both former undercover officers, represented by Oliver Sanders QC for their opening statement, and the Metropolitan Police make it clear in their statements that the SDS was by no means an autonomous policing unit. It produced intelligence for customers on request. The Met noted the huge volume of reports that the SDS provided to the security services, often in response to specific requests, while the officers' lawyers specifically claimed that it was the security service who was seeking information on schoolchildren and that that is why the SDS filed those reports. Far from offering any justification for the operations, both statements raise extremely worrying questions about the extent to which even darker deeper secret agencies have been allowed to subvert policing resources into unlawful and anti-democratic activities that had no possible legitimate policing end. Both the Met and ex-undercover officers also repeated calls to know what relevant books the chair is reading and for, quote, independent neutral expert witnesses to be called to give evidence about the historical context of the time, They back up their somewhat disingenuous claim that such evidence could be neutral by claiming that history is an academic discipline and historians observe certain ethical and professional requirements, but then they go on to cite Christopher Andrew as one such possible objective expert. Andrew is the author of Defence of the Realm, the Authorised History of MI5. Overall, they appear very concerned that by present-day standards, what they did is clearly abhorrent, and they seem to hope that putting it into the historical context of the sexist, racist policing of the 1970s like a real-life episode of Life on Mars might lead to them being judged in a more favourable light. The issue of undercover officers stealing dead children's identities also came up. Both barristers apologised again for the practice but were keen to point out that it wasn't really the SDS's fault. They want Mitting to look at where the practice originated, citing a variety of earlier examples, including the fact that it was used by other agencies such as the KGB. Their worry seems to be that the SDS will get all the blame for this ghoulish practice. Skelton also added that the Security Service had a way of tracking when dead children's identities were being stolen to generate false passports. This is the first that we have heard of this. At the end of Skelton's statement, Mitting addressed some of the points that he had raised. He did not accept that the theft of dead children's identities should be investigated more widely. He was focused on the SDS and was not investigating the security service. He rather pointedly warned the police that they may not want to compare their own practices to those of the KGB.
2: I do not intend to investigate whether um, uh, deceased children's identities were used by others. I can't for one moment think that you would wish uh, it to be thought that the KGB had been the originator of the practice uh, adopted by a, a domestic police force. I, I think the less said about that, the better.
1: As far as Mitting was concerned, he did not need the assistance of a historian, as during the period the inquiry covers, he was a sentient adult, interested in political affairs, and he feels he is already aware of the political and social circumstances of the time. If he needs any further information on a particular Aspect he can ask a witness, as he says he did in his previous questioning of Tariq Ali on the nature of Trotskyism. He also recognised that historians themselves have widely differing perspectives, something that the police sought to avoid. He was equally scathing of the request to let core participants know all the books he had read, saying that he had a library of over three hundred books and he was not going to catalogue them all, nor put into the public domain every bit of evidence that he that had formed his understanding. He was, however, happy to have reading material suggested to him. To his mind, the most useful material he could get were the documents themselves. With most of the senior officers from A8 and the security services now deceased, that would be the best source of information, if those documents exist. Apparently, despite calling for the evidence, the Metropolitan Police do not know where their own materials, such as the risk assessments sent to A8, might be found. However, although Mitting is not going to call on junior officers, even if they're still alive, as he doesn't feel they would have had the full picture of what was happening, he is going to ask those who can help to do so. Nobody pointed out that the Met are actually calling for evidence that only they can provide, and so far have failed to do. In fact, they have produced very little evidence that could put their boys in the SDS in a good light. The final issue he addressed, arising from Skelton's argument, was the issue of the lawfulness of the SDS itself. This has been raised by Charlotte Kilroy QC on behalf of the women targeted for relationships, whose statement will be heard tomorrow. Kilroy has advanced a powerful set of arguments challenging the foundation of undercover policing. Both Skelton and Sanders were clearly worried about this and sought to head some of the arguments off at the pass. Sanders spoke a lot about the values and context of the 1970s in his defence and raised the point that it would also affect the likes of MI5, MI6 and GCHQ if the chair were to look at the lawfulness of undercover policing. Mitting responded that the main issues of lawfulness to his mind related to whether undercover police had the right to enter private homes as part of their work, and also the distribution of confidential information such as bank details without a warrant. He is open to further submissions on these points, which go to the heart of all the activities of the undercover policing unit, and it is expected that Miss Kilroy QC will go deeper into these issues tomorrow. Oliver Sanders, speaking for the undercover officers themselves, followed Mitting's response to Skelton and was left floundering. The goalposts have not only been moved, but the ball has been taken away, he plaintively complained. His statement clearly showed the SDS are worried that they will take the brunt of the blame for the egregious behaviour, even though they feel other spies were also at it. He echoed much of Skelton's points where he could. Where he did expand on something new was the request for expert advice from a psychiatric analyst. He was keen to suggest that this would shed light on undercover activities and provide necessary context. Mitting said no. There is sufficient material on that subject from the 1990s and 2000s, and Sanders' suggestion went beyond what it was reasonable to expect of the inquiry. As far as Mitting is concerned, it was already obvious that being an undercover had adverse impacts on some of the officers. He also pointed out that if we're going to talk about psychological damage, he would have to investigate the damage done to the victims of the police spies. In addition to the oral statements reported above, written statements were also published on the Inquiry website on Monday the 9th of May on behalf of Diane Langford, John Reese, and Joan Rudder. Diane Langford was active in the Britain-Vietnam Solidarity Front, set up the Women's Liberation Front, was the partner of Maoist leader Abhimanyu Manchanda and gave a strong statement during the last set of hearings in May 2021. She also wrote up how she got involved in the Inquiry and there are links to all of those statements on the Campaign Opposing Police Surveillance website. This year, she submitted an additional statement after finding out that the Metropolitan Police had more information on her, which the inquiry had failed to find, even though it was right in front of them. The inquiry has something to learn here from a core participant who would not take no for an answer. Langford submitted a subject access request to the Metropolitan Police for her special branch registry file, and quite extraordinarily, she got it. The 12 pages provided were a heavily redacted copy of her personal file opened by Special Branch, the history sheet listing the dates that information was added and what it entailed. Unsurprisingly, the inquiry refused to provide her with all the reports included in the disclosure, saying it was not proportionate, read too much work. Langford subsequently asked for the material linked to 12 specific registry file entries to which the inquiry agreed. They subsequently identified two reports she had not previously seen, but said they did not consider it necessary for her to get them before the current hearings. Clearly, the history sheet complements the disclosure provided to date by the inquiry. And Langford commented, it seems to me to be a very simple and proportionate way to identify relevant reporting. It also appears to give a more detailed picture of the undercover deployments, and she had some useful advice for mitting. If other civilian witnesses are provided with their own history sheets, it could help them to assist the inquiry in its investigations. Langford also concludes that the decision to open a registry file on her was made largely as a result of the SDS. What if the Britain-Vietnam Solidarity Front had not been infiltrated in the first place? This is an important issue for the inquiry to keep in mind. Infiltrating groups on the left becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because a spy cop is planted next to you, you get mentioned in their reports on a regular basis, and a certain number of mentions would become a reason to open a personal file. The formal designation as a person of interest has significant implications. Lamford cites blacklisting as an obvious example. Did the opening of my registry file lead to other agencies opening files on me? Did it lead to trade union blacklisting or agencies spying on me at work? She has every right to ask these questions, as her subject access request also revealed some heavily redacted reports that have not been released on her separation from Manchanda, her union activities, and even on the books that she took to work. She's described as frequently seen reading Maoist literature, which she finds particularly disturbing. A clear example of thought policing. How on earth did this information end up in a special branch report? She wants the inquiry to tell her who produced the reports and who the information was collected for. Langford is now 80 years old, and yet the state still holds files on her based on her attendance at political meetings over half a century ago. Her own research has brought to light yet more discrepancies in the work of the inquiry. It turns out some of the reports listed on her registry file have been disclosed to the inquiry before, but they don't name her. So how did the information that she attended those meetings end up in her file? Last but not least, the history sheet of her personal file ends in 1984, and she wonders if this is simply because registry files were computerised in the mid 1980s. As I said in my first statement, given that I am as politically active now as I was then, I find it extremely unlikely that the surveillance of me has ever stopped and feel that this is something that is relevant for the inquiry to investigate. Other statements published on Monday, 9th of May, by the public inquiry include the statements of Joan Rudder and John Rees, who were anti fascist activists in the late 1970s. Rudder worked for the Anti Nazi League in London and had been present at the Battle of Lewisham in August 1977, when the fascist National Front had been confronted and repelled by a huge number of people. Rees took part in another demonstration in South Hall, South London, on 23rd of April 1979, to protest against another march of the National Front. This protest became notorious when anti-fascist protester Blair Peach was killed by police. Reese lived with his parents and came to London specifically for the day. He had been active in the Socialist Worker Party at Hull University, but attended this demonstration alone. The questions the inquiry asked of these two witnesses were quite revealing, exposing the context of the investigation, The Anti-Nazi League and the Socialist Worker Party had put out calls to attend the demonstrations, and it seems the inquiry still hopes they can be held responsible for organising riots. The inquiry relentlessly probed this line, asking, did the ANL use violence to advance its aims? Did the ANL foresee a time when violence would or could be necessary to realise its aims? Did the ANL advocate, provoke or approve of public disorder in order to advance its aims? Did the ANL consider it necessary to break the law in order to advance its aims? If so, please explain. Both witnesses were asked about the violence they saw, and both gave convincing and detailed accounts of how the police were responsible for most, if not all, confrontations. Joan Rudder recalls how she saw many wounded people, most having been beaten on the head, After the police refused them access to the ambulances, she accompanied some injured people to a house made into a makeshift medical centre. However, they were not allowed to stay there until things had quietened down. Instead, they were forcibly evicted. As we exited the house, we went along a path to the gate, which was obviously open. The police had stationed themselves on either side. I'm guessing six or eight officers were either side with truncheons drawn ready. As we went through the gate, we were attacked and beaten. I was beaten on the crown of my head and my head split open. I have six stitches and the hair has never grown back. My long-lasting memory of this event was that the police were out of control, without doubt. The people I was standing with, nobody had any weapons or anything that could be used as a weapon. On the counter-demonstration, we were being herded around by the police. Their whole mobilisation was to deny our right to peacefully protest. They had riot shields and they were out with horses. They had their battens drawn and they were long battens. They weren't the short ones. Somebody somewhere must have authorised their use. In this context, it is worth repeating what David Barr QC noted in his opening statement today from the secret evidence heard by the inquiry in closed hearings. An undercover officer, HN41, was present at the demonstration in Southall at which Blair Peach died. Although his managers had some reservations about him attending because, and I quote, uniformed police were going to clamp down on the demonstrations. This quite clearly suggests that the police violence in Southall that killed Blair Peach had been planned in advance.
0: The second day began with Catherine Brown representing the Home Secretary. She made a very brief appearance, just confirming that the Home Secretary remained supportive of the Inquiry's work. James Scobie QC, representing Lindsay German, Mary and Richard Chesham, argued that the material disclosed by the Inquiry demonstrated that... There was no justification for the spy cops' infiltrations on the grounds of preventing public disorder. The true purpose was political and economic. There was no legal justification and the government knew this. The special demonstration squad was really part of a large data harvesting scheme run on behalf of MI5 targeting anyone with left-wing politics. Public order was used as an excuse to justify the unit's ongoing existence. The government was aware that these operations were targeting lawful democratic activities. The intelligence gathered by the SDS was used to blacklist law-abiding members of the public and prevent them from being employed in a wide range of jobs. He pointed out that the Socialist Worker Party had been mischaracterized in order to justify its being infiltrated by over 24 SDS officers over the years. In fact, The revolutionary change they advocated was democratic in nature, with the aim of creating equality for all.
3: The Socialist Workers' Party were not arguing for any kind of push against the state. There was no talk of guillotines or bombing campaigns. The aims of revolutionary socialism are to transform society from within readdressing the balance of power away from the minority that holds it to the majority that should. That process has to be democratic by definition. They campaigned on issues such as sexual discrimination, racism, low pay, unsafe working conditions, unemployment and poverty, all of which needed transforming. They focused on building a mass movement and broad-based campaigns with the aim of helping to create a
0: better society. According to Colin Clark, Officer HN80, who spent five years embedded within the SWP's headquarters, he
3: said the SWP were strongly opposed to government policy, but were not seeking to subvert the institutions of the state.
0: Scobie showed that although the unit had a purely public order remit when it was founded, by the mid-1970s this justification had become increasingly contrived as public disorder was on the decline. Instead, the unit moved towards serving customers such as MI5 who told them what to get and where to get it. STS management had regular meetings with the security services. Between 1968 and 1971, there was an exponential increase in the number of SDS reports being produced, from a few hundred to tens of thousands. The vast majority contained personal details of left-wing sympathizers, rather than anything relating to public order. This is an accurate reflection of the true priorities of the spy cops, not the skewed picture that the police now claim it to be. The content of the unit's annual reports back up his assertion. Even the public order successes claimed by the SDS are misleading. Scobie was able to demonstrate how they did this in Lindsay German's experience of the Right to Work campaign. The SDS exaggerated the potential threat of disorder, and then claimed the credit for it not occurring. When in fact, it was the campaigners themselves who ensured events were well stewarded and passed off peacefully. Scobie highlighted the Metropolitan Police's refusal to acknowledge the racist nature of many acts of extreme violence, such as the murder in 1978 of Altab Ali. Racially emotive attacks were relatively common, yet those responsible were ignored by the SDS. The real threats of public disorder and violence came from the far right. Yet Scobie noted that according to Detective Inspector Angus McIntosh, Officer HN244, there was a deliberate policy decision made at a high level for the STS not to infiltrate them. From the closed evidence of Officer HN21. From the SWP side, it was mostly shouting. From the far right,
3: it was mostly physical violence.
0: Instead, two special branch officers were reportedly, in 1968, sent by their chief superintendent to take tea on the lawn of one well-known fascist, later imprisoned for inciting racial hatred, Lady Jane Birdwood, and thank her for the information she had shared with them. Next, we heard about the guidelines applied to special branch work, and therefore to the SDS, and the way subversion was interpreted by them. Definitions were left deliberately vague so that legitimate political and industrial activity could be treated as subversive and therefore fair game for the spy cops. This may explain why senior managers and the Home Office, according to the material that has now been released, were keen to ensure that the existence of the unit remained secret and the public never found out that these officers had been given unchecked powers to pry into the political opinions and private conduct of law-abiding citizens, and to interfere with the freedom of assembly and expression. At least nine spy cops are known to have assumed positions of responsibility within the SWP. These include Colin Clark, Officer HN80, Phil Cooper, Officer HN155, who provided incredibly detailed reports and received commendations for their work. Their reports included a lot of information about trade union activity, an area neither MI5 or special branch was officially permitted to investigate. The SDS bent the rules to suit themselves. The real reason for systematically hoovering up hundreds of SWP members' data was political and economic policing. SWP activists were at real risk of being refused work and blacklisted, and this is something Richard Chesham experienced for himself. This document from 1975 refers to a close and mutually profitable relationship between the police and employers. Members of Parliament were concerned enough about the issue back in the 1970s to ask questions about trade unionists being targeted, but the police lied to them. Fiona Murphy QC, representing Category F core participants Families who had discovered the identities of their loved ones had been appropriated by the spy cops to construct cover names. Their earlier opening statements in November 2020 and April 2021 described the devastation of losing their loved ones and the horror they suffered upon learning that their identities had been used in the most abhorrent way. This stage of the inquiry is of particular importance to them as they seek to learn how the practice of using the identities of dead children began and how it came to be normalised by the Spike Ops. Murphy took a moment to remember Barbara Shaw, who had sadly passed away last year. She had been instrumental in pursuing justice for the families affected in this way for the last decade, since learning that her son's name, Rod Richardson, had been stolen by one of the Spy Cops. In 2021, the Crown Prosecution Service concluded there was sufficient evidence to bring a criminal prosecution against Officer EN-32, or HN-596, but they nevertheless decided not to press charges. They feel it is not in the public interest, as the officer was only following his unlawful training. The fact that a conviction would be likely is surely enough to prosecute him and his unlawful mentor, who we now know to be Andy Coles, Officer HN2. The CPS told Rod Richardson's family of their decision last year, eight years after the truth was revealed and two weeks after Barbara Shaw had died. The delays of this inquiry continue to cause significant distress to the remaining families who ask the officers now volunteer the full truth without any ambiguity and without any economy as to that truth. There is one family listed whose name has been redacted from the statement. This is due to a restriction order granted by Mitting awarding both the real and cover name anonymity to the undercover who used the name of their deceased child. This means that they too are silenced and cannot speak up in public, cannot seek support, and
4: Against a backdrop of unspeakable trauma, the family feel degraded, humiliated, debased and silenced, both in the public domain and in their personal relations. The family have been shut out from the opportunity to scrutinise whether even the process that resulted in the imposition of the restriction took proper account of the ongoing gross interference with their rights
0: the family says that the evidence they heard last year crystallized their views that there was no need for this ghoulish practice to have been adopted in the first place or maintained for so many years and they question the need for spy cops operations very existence as murphy put it
4: sds was a secret operation operating in isolation from an outside both moral and legal norms. They had every confidence that its secrets would remain
1: secret.
0: Murphy then provided an overview of the practice, the many contradictions and how managers sought to justify it. In the early years of the SDS, only one officer, Mike Scott, Officer HN298, stole the identity of a deceased child. He says he did so on his own initiative under other covers in those years, 1968 to seventy-four, simply created fictitious identities, and this worked fine. They were able to obtain driving licences, library cards, etc., in their invented names, and no deployments were compromised as a result. Regional and National Crime Squad officers continued in this way until at least 1998, again, without any problems. However, we now know that many SDS officers... Approximately half of those represented by the designated lawyers chose this method of constructing an identity based on the real name of a deceased child from 1974 onwards. It has been suggested that this became standard procedure due to deployments based on purely fictitious identities being compromised. However, there is no evidence of this being true. There were spy cops who raised concerns about this practice and about the moral implications and at least one is known to have refused to adopt this method of creating a legend. Colin Clark chose to use a fictitious name during his time undercover, 1977-1982, with a passport issued and no known problems. When deployments were compromised, this was often due to the officers themselves making mistakes. For example, Graham Coates, officer HN304, accidentally gave his real name when stopped for drink driving. Richard Clark, officer HN-297, was confronted by big flame activists with a copy of a death certificate for the person he was pretending to be, Rick Gibson, and had to be pulled out of the field immediately as a result. Whether or not this tactic originated with the day of the Jackal Book, or the film of the same name, or the KGB, remains unknown. Murphy went on to say that the SDS was an entirely misguided enterprise, blaming the unit's managers for perpetuating this unethical and illegal practice and a toxic culture of secrecy. She cited the current temporary MPS commissioner, who recently spoke out against failures of leadership resulting in institutional toxicity that could not be explained away as just a few bad apples. Charlotte Kilroy QC, representing Category H core participants began her oral statement with some very old case law about the ransacking and seizure of property by the Earl of Halifax in the home of John Entick in 1762. The relevance to the inquiry soon became apparent.
5: In due course, he sued for trespass. The resulting judgment of Lord Camden Chief Justice... Entick and Carrington, is widely acknowledged as one of the most important constitutional judgments in the common law.
0: It establishes that the state cannot issue general warrants or any kind of speculative or non-specific invasion of private homes in search of evidence of crimes. This, together with common law principles of personal security, liberty and property, underpins much of modern policing. Fast forward two centuries to 1968, Following unrest on the March Grosvenor Square demo, the special demonstration squad was set up by Special Branch and the Home Office, seemingly without any proper legal or political oversight.
5: Before very long, undercover officers were being deployed for years at a time and instructed to infiltrate left wing political or protest groups. Posing as trusted fellow members, they would be invited to and did attend private meetings, including in private homes and properties where they spied on people. They were given very little direction as to who to target and what to report. And in practice reported almost everything. Undercover officers trespassed in private property. They operated without any warrant at all on instructions so wide they could select for themselves who to target and what to collect. These activities plainly conflicted with the law and not just any law, the law set out in and Carrington one of the bedrocks of the rule of law and policing. But those in charge had a weapon the Earl of Halifax did not have, secrecy. Neither the courts nor the public knew what they were doing and so they carried on doing it for decades with successive secretaries of state authorising the continuation of the unit.
0: Charlotte then retold the now familiar story of Officer Mark Kennedy's unmasking in 2010.
5: Mark's story was not the only thing that unravelled. After it appeared in the press, it eventually emerged that for at least three decades, scores of other officers from the SDS and MPOIU had infiltrated social, political and justice movements posing as members. They had invaded the private lives and homes of of thousands of law-abiding citizens, the vast majority of whom neither had nor ever would commit any criminal offense, still less a serious one. Incredibly, Mark was just one of many officers who had engaged in sexual relationships. Some had had children. The secrecy shrouding the acts of the SDS since 1968 had finally lifted. Sir, it is as a result of this accidental discovery that this inquiry has been established.
0: Secret surveillance powers characterise the police state and are a menace. This was a ruling of the European Court of Human Rights in Class versus Others v Germany 1978. Secret surveillance poses the danger of undermining, even destroying democracy, while claiming to defend it. In all democracies governed by the rule of law, covert powers are confined to the most serious threats. Secrecy is always a danger to democracy. It corrupts and it encourages abuse. Ms Kilroy made detailed written submissions on the applicable legal framework.
5: I want to start with freedom of expression because that is the right that those spied on by the SDS were exercising. It is a right integral to democracy and it is protected both by common law and the convention. Lord Stain in ex-Party Sims said, "'In a democracy, it is the primary right. "'Without it, an effective rule of law is not possible.'" Article 10 of the convention, consequently expressly protects the freedom to hold opinions, to share them without interference. And that includes being able to do so without attracting the attention of the police and without being monitored and placed under surveillance.
0: The sanctity of the home, the family and possessions is zealously protected in common law and Article 8 of the Human Rights Act and is considered absolutely sacred, just as every person's body is considered inviolate. Any interference is considered trespass and the burden is on the police to justify their trespasses. Mr Sanders, representing some of the former undercovers, yesterday suggested that everything a public authority does is considered lawful until ruled otherwise by a court. That is untrue. A statutory instrument is presumed lawful, but a trespass is not. Using deception and tricks to gain an invite into someone's home is no justification, and even when a warrant exists, it is not lawful if it allows discretion as to who the target of the warrant is, or speculative searches for evidence of crime. The primary focus of Miss Kilroy's submissions is UK common law. Nevertheless, international law is also relevant. Yesterday, the police suggested it was not applicable. and Mitting appeared to agree. This is wrong for three reasons. Number one. The European Convention on Human Rights was applicable law at the time, and the UK was committed to comply with it. Any failure to do that must be relevant to an assessment of the statutory regulation of undercover policing, which is part of the inquiry's task. How can the inquiry conclude the statutory regulation of the undercover policing was adequate if it led to the UK breaking its international human rights commitments? Number two. One of the great inequities of secrecy is that it obstructs accountability. The UK has twice changed domestic law in response to ECHR rulings during the 1980s and 90s. If people had been able to raise the practices of the SDS in Strasbourg, it would very likely have led to changes in the law. Number three, the inquiry is tasked with examining the effects of undercover policing on individuals and the public in general. The large-scale breach of people's human rights and the denial of redress due to secrecy is clearly a serious effect. The Investigatory Powers Tribunal ruling in Wilson. This case from 2021 addresses all the rights outlined above in the context of undercover policing. The Investigatory Powers Tribunal ruled that the Met and the National Police Chiefs Council had violated Wilson's rights under Articles 3, 8, 10, 11 and 14. The police lawyers yesterday sought to diminish the relevance of this case to the inquiry by saying it was based on the facts of the case. That is of course true, but the similarity between the facts and the impact on individuals spied on in that case and those in tranche 1 of this inquiry is impossible to ignore. Specifically, the police argument that allowing the police to make proportionate responses to demonstrations is a justification for undercover operations was rejected by the IPT. Likewise, they cannot be considered to justify trespass. The findings that the operations violated Wilson's right to freedom of expression and association also have obvious impacts on the actions of the SDS. The IPT also ruled that two senior officers knew about the sexual relationship and others adopted a policy of don't ask, don't tell, a finding the inquiry must bear in mind when questioning managers in this tranche. The police accepted the judgment and they did not appeal any of the findings. Policing by consent. The whole concept of policing by consent is likely to be viewed by most CPs as a fantasy of the liberal state Some activist groups have recently declared their withdrawal of any consent. However, the concept did provide Kilroy with some extra ammunition. For instance, Principle 5 of the Peelian Principles, 1829, states that officers are injuncted at all times to uphold the historic tradition that the police are the public and the public are the police. The police are only members of the public paid to give full-time attention to duties that are incumbent on every member of the public lying and deceiving the public and trespassing on their privacy property and intimate lives fundamentally undermines this principle the 2005 inquiries act the police submissions yesterday sought to suggest that the applicable legal framework is not relevant to the inquiry's task because section 2 of the inquiries act says the chair cannot determine individual liability however that does not mean that the law is not relevant to the terms of reference in other ways. Conclusions Managers ought to have been well aware of the risks posed by their operations, yet in the inquiries tranche one period alone, 1968-1982, at least six officers engaged in deceitful relationships with numerous women. It is a striking feature of all the evidence so far that the common law and human rights of the individuals and the impact of long-term undercover operations on those rights were rarely, if ever, considered.
5: The evidence shows that there was no guidance or training on privacy concerns or intimate relationships. It shows that undercover officers were given free reign to decide how to run their own surveillance and that tasking was usually broad brush with no restriction on entering homes and no restriction on surveillance or on recording information. On the contrary, they were, officers were expected to hoover up as much information as possible. No consideration was given to the welfare or privacy of those under surveillance. And overall, they reported very little crime, disorder or intelligence about real risks to democracy. Often, uh, the intelligence gathered showed an absence of any serious threats to public order.
0: In conclusion, Kiroy stated, it is Category H's position that those operations were incompatible with all standards of law. Scrutiny, when it finally came, came only by accident. Responsibility for that lies with the senior police officers and Home Office officials who maintained this secrecy for so long. The police were corrupted by these practices. Their betrayal of the values of truth, integrity and honesty is made particularly clear by their willingness to lie to the courts, attacking the very institutions it was their duty to support. Why did managers decide to abandon all the tenets of common law and the principles of policing, simply to find out how many officers to send to a demonstration, or whether people's ideas were subversive? Answering this will be an important area of investigation for the inquiry. Charlotte Kilroy QC also representing Diane Langford and Madeline, The experience of these two women provide more evidence of the police overreaching their legal powers with open-ended broad-brush investigations that relied on the spy cops' discretion. Any test of justification for targeting and reporting on them failed something particularly egregious given the deception of Madeline into a relationship. Diane Langford, a long-time political activist, has never taken part in or been arrested for criminal activity. Despite this, at least six undercover officers infiltrated her life and reported on her, and on private meetings held in her home. These reports contain personal information about her, often accompanied by inappropriate personal comments on her views and domestic arrangements. Both Sandra Davis, Officer HN348, and Dave Robertson, Officer HN45, have admitted they never witnessed any public disorder or criminal behaviour being committed by Diane or her comrades. It is difficult to see what justified the level of intrusions you suffered or the use of police resources. Groups like the Women's Liberation Front were targeted for no reason other than curiosity on the part of the police and or security services. According to Sandra Davis, the undercovers were not provided with guidance or limits about entering private homes or collecting personal, private details of their targets. Robertson's remit was likewise to gather as much intelligence as possible on his targets. In Diane's case, there is none of the evidence that would be required to justify an overt investigation, never mind a covert operation. This made the surveillance unlawful. Diane now knows that the files relating to her have not all been disclosed and requests that this happen so that she can fully and properly assist the inquiry. Madeline was deceived into a relationship by undercover Vincent Harvey a.k.a. Vince Miller, officer HN354. She describes how after giving evidence on this last year, she learned his real name. This led to her finding out that he went on to lead Operation Pragada, investigation into child sexual abuse in Lambeth and later became a national director of the National Criminal Intelligence Service. Madeline was shocked by this, given what he did to her. Kilroy pointed out, Harvey was allowed to choose his own targets and use his personal judgement when he decided what to include in his reports. He took up positions of trust, such as secretary or treasurer, within the SWP branches and used these as an opportunity to gather intelligence on party members and activity. He reported personal information, expecting it to be of use to the security services. Madeline was involved in SWP activities which were entirely open and lawful, aiming to create a fairer society. Vince Harvey himself noted that their main interest was in building a working class movement, for all that there was rhetoric around the revolution. Madeline's evidence is confirmed by a new witness in the inquiry, Julia Pointer, a former SWP member who attest to both the nature of the SWP groups and Madeline's relationship with Harvey. Owen Greenhall, representing Lord Peter Hain, Ernest Rodker, and Jonathan Rosenhead, opened with the anti-apartheid protests at the Star Garter Hotel in Richmond almost 50 years ago today. Activists sought to delay the departure of the British Lions rugby team on their tour to South Africa, Among them was a man known as Mike Scott, officer HN 298. Fourteen activists, including Scott himself, were arrested that day and later convicted at trial. This has already been referred to the panel considering miscarriages of justice. It is an affront to justice that he deliberately deceived the defence, prosecution and court as to his identity and the nature of his role. There was no prior authorization for him to participate in a demonstration leading to his arrest. He withheld key factual information that should have acquitted the defendants. The presence of an undercover officer was never disclosed to the arresting officers, the defence, the prosecution or the court. And he breached legal privilege, reporting and recording confidential conversations between the defendants and the lawyers. These concerns have already been articulated in previous statements. However, we are now looking at the role of STS managers. It is clear from the evidence at the current inquiry hearings that this was all done with the full knowledge and encouragement of STS managers and senior officers at all levels of the Metropolitan Police. STS manager Sergeant David Smith, officer HN 103, was present at the first court appearance on the 15th of May 1972. And STS managers monitored the case closely. Within days, details had been communicated to the highest levels of special branch. Deputy Commissioner Ferguson Smith sent a memo confirming the assistant commissioner had been verbally briefed. Senior management was strongly supportive, saying HN 298 had acted with refreshing initiative and that they should take advantage of the situation. Discussions were had about assisting Scott in maintaining his deception, participating in criminal proceedings in the false identity, and even applying for legal aid. The only concern expressed was about the potential for embarrassment to the police if they ever got found out. This apparently set the tone and created a template for a policy of total secrecy, lack of disclosure and complete disregard for legal privilege and the integrity of the criminal justice system. Like Scott, Desmond Barry Loader, officer HN13, was arrested a number of times, faced trial and was even found guilty of public order offences. No disclosure was ever made, however the court was told he was an informant, not a police officer and were asked to ensure he did not go to jail. In both cases, SCS managers, at all levels, were quickly aware and complicit in the lies, with deputy and assistant commissioners, and even the commissioner himself involved in decisions to deceive the courts. There is no mention of any concern for the right of co-defendants or the integrity of the criminal justice system. The themes of lack of policy, training, guidance and oversight, an overriding need to preserve total secrecy of the SDS and prevent reputational damage to the police and lack of consideration for the rights of those spied upon are echoed in other areas of concern, such as targeting political groups, the indiscriminate collection of information and undercover officers taking active roles within political groups. Greenhall went into some detail about the targeting of the anti-apartheid movement and the Young Liberals and notes that the evidence paints a picture of targeting led by the undercover officers themselves, with SDS managers unable to exercise proper control. He also cited deeply personal details recorded on his clients and their families by SDS and passed on to the security services. He concluded by citing similar concerns over the indiscriminate recording and retention of information by special branch as reflected in the home office paper produced in 1980 which noted that some of the information collected may not easily be justified reflecting that disproportional data collection was directly related to the lack of clear management guidance and recommending independent oversight and supervision yet 42 years later here we are Sam Jacobs, representing Celia Stubbs, who was partner of Blair Peach, who was killed by a police officer, striking a blow to his head during a protest against racism in Southall in April 1979. The circumstances of the tragic death of Blair Peach and the sustained cover-up that followed is told in Celia Stubbs' statement and was summarised for part two of the inquiry. Undercover officers reporting on her commenced in the 1970s and continued at least into the 1990s. Her statement today, read out by Sam Jacobs, focused on the question how she had become a target of the SDS and why intelligence was gathered on her for decades. Importantly, she found out that the Metropolitan Police still withholds information on the death of Peach. The managers who have given written information generally deny any knowledge of why the Blair Peach campaign was reported on. However, when it comes to explaining the reporting on the funeral of Blair Peach, Angus McIntosh says that he would not have known to what use such information would have been put to. But his understanding is that it was for the security service and for vetting and identification tracing. More was revealed in the summaries of the closed hearing the inquiry has held. Officer HN-21 recalled one of the management asked him to attend Blair Peach's funeral and it could have been Jeff Craft, Officer HN-34. As to why it was that the SDS wanted to report on the funeral, HN-21 described that part of the core business was to identify people individuals who were connected to groups in this in the instance of attending Blair Peach's funeral the motive was just that and he had not thought, and he had not thought that there was any possibility of disorder as was mentioned earlier today SCS managers did not want undercover officers to attend the rally at Southall as it was known that uniformed officers were planning to clamp down on demonstrators and dangers were more than normal undercover officer HN41 also described the disastrous mistake in public order planning of closing down part of Southall. For Celia Stubbs, this offers a glimpse into the information likely within the report that may have been profoundly important in exposing the approach of police to the rally and the violence which resulted in the death of Blair Peach. Crucially, HN41 recalled that he was smuggled in to Scotland Yard to give a statement as the murder squad had heard of his presence in Southall. This shows that the officers investigating Blair Peach's death were well aware of the SDS presence and likely knowledge of events, knowledge that was never revealed in the inquest at the time. The fact that this has only been dealt with in closed hearings raises concerns about the ability for Stubbs and others to participate effectively in the inquiry, as without full access it is not possible to question the witnesses properly. As Jacobs empathetically stated, this evidence must be revisited by the chair. These relevations only add to Stubbs' grief about the ongoing refusal of the Metropolitan Police to be open and honest about its actions. It is painful that time and again it is up to her to come up with new evidence of the police's failure and of the inquiries for that matter. Like Diane Langford, who we heard earlier this week, Stubbs submitted a subject access request and received her special branch registry file and some further documents from the Metropolitan Police that were not disclosed by the inquiry. The documents include the first information on her, with a photo attached, her relationship to Peach, and an assault by two members of the National Front for wearing an anti-Nazi League badge. One file shows that special branch information was collected on all individuals who provided a statement in respect to the killing of Blair Peach. Why was that information collected and put on file? The disclosed reports, while heavily redacted, reveal the disdain that the Metropolitan Police held towards those seeking to hold police to account. Though she never did achieve justice for Blair Peach, her campaigning was valiant and dignified. To special branch, however, she was merely a propaganda tool for the left-wing publicity machine. Stubbs hopes the inquiry understands how traumatic discovering this has been. I have felt more distressed, but also angry. To put it bluntly, Police officers took my partner's life and then concealed the truth. The concluding job of this inquiry is to uncover the truth.
1: The third day of the 2022 undercover policing inquiry began with the opening statement of Rajiv Menon QC, representing Tariq Ali, Piers Corbyn and the interests of Ernie Tate. Ernie Tate sadly passed away in 2021 without receiving any meaningful disclosure from the inquiry. First of all, Mr Menon spoke about the secret hearings that have been held during the last year, known as the T1P4 hearings. In his view, it is fundamentally wrong and unfair to conduct closed hearings as part of a so-called public inquiry. The transcripts of those hearings have been heavily redacted, and we are told that this is being done in the public interest. Evidence was taken from five officers in T1P4, but we are not being told their real or cover names. Instead of being supplied with copies of their evidence, we have documents of unattributed excerpts. This is especially ridiculous in the case of Officer HN21.
6: An officer who was perfectly willing 20 years ago to speak openly about his undercover role in the BBC documentary True Lies, is unable to give evidence in open session.
1: This is someone who admitted having a sexual relationship with at least one woman, but we have not been permitted to question him or find out more. It is estimated that 50% of the evidence gathered during the T1P4 has been redacted and might therefore remain secret forever. Menon repeated the request he made last year, that the inquiry reconsider the need for such redactions, and commit to regularly reviewing decisions about disclosure so that names and information can be made public in future if circumstances change. He went on to talk about police violence. The secrecy in T1P4 is also wrong in the case of Officer HN41, who is of great importance to understanding what happened at the anti-racist demonstration in Southall on 23 April 1979. When Blair Peach was murdered by the Met's special patrol group, and Tariq Ali and many others were severely beaten by police. HN41 says that he was warned by senior special branch officers not to go with his target group because the uniformed police were going to clamp down on the demonstrators and management considered the dangers were more than normal. Mr. Menon states that there is no doubt uniformed police were under secret orders to use violence at anti fascist demonstrations. Meanwhile, intelligence from the special demonstration squad seems to heighten the view within uh, within the police that all anti-fascist demonstrators were subversives, so they were fair game for police truncheons. According to D.I. Angus McIntosh, Officer HN244, there was a high-level policy decision not to infiltrate extreme right-wing groups. This confirms what we already know about the prejudiced nature of special demonstration squad surveillance. Yet, given HN41's observations, who exactly made this high-level policy decision and why? Mr Menon asks us to bear in mind that the special demonstration squad was an integral part of the secret state. Senior officers and politicians were well aware of the SDS's existence, something borne out by the disclosure we've received. He also lets the comments of SDS manager Geoffrey Craft, Officer HN34, about mob rule, lefties and scruffy hairy so-and-sos speak for themselves, describing it as classic reds under the bed stuff with a dose of McCarthyism thrown in for good measure. Following up on his earlier points on HN41, he addresses the claimed successes of the special demonstration squad in combating public disorder by asking,
6: "Our Red Lion Square Grunwick, Lewisham and Southall supposed to be police successes? If so, perhaps this gives the measure of what the police were trying to achieve at the time.
1: The police really scraped the justification barrel when they suggest that the unit's usefulness includes working out that some groups pose no threat at all by infiltrating them for long periods of time. Alternative intelligence gathering methods were available He looked at whether there were less harmful ways of collecting intelligence, using the case of SDS officer Roy Creamer and the anarchist scene of the late 60s and early 70s. D.I. Creamer was described by noted anarchist Stuart Christie as the Yard's dialectician of dissent. Creamer was curious as to what made anarchists tick. He was the epitome of what Menon called the direct approach, as opposed to the oblique approach developed by Conrad Dixon and the other spy cops. Instead of going undercover, he established friendly relationships with targets and talked to them. The barrister suggested that the direct approach was a proportionate and less damaging way of gathering intelligence than the methods used by the SDS. However, we at the campaign opposing police surveillance strongly recommend that you never talk to coppers, especially if they seem friendly. Menon next moved to a theme of increasing importance in the inquiry. The relationship between the SDS and the Security Service, also known as MI5. He emphasized the Security Service's interest in this new unit from the moment it was founded. They recognized the squad's potential value as a long-term intelligence-gathering operation against all those it deemed subversive.
6: In our view, MI5 were the organ grinders and SDS were the monkeys. Only the monkeys did not know to whose tune they were really dancing. Even Geoffrey Croft who became chief superintendent of F-Squad in about 1981, with responsibility for SDS, says that the branch were the legs of the security service. SDS was only a development of that. SDS gave mi 5 a huge base of information for their vetting activity.
1: Rajiv Menon was followed by Dave Morris, who is representing himself. This was a relatively short statement from Morris, who has already given several previous opening statements to the inquiry, as well as a witness statement. His name appears in multiple Special Demonstrations World reports released by the Inquiry. He was active in various anarchist and environmental groups.
2: I have been involved since 1974 in a range of groups and campaigns trying to encourage the public to support one another and empower themselves where they live and work to challenge injustice, oppression and damage to the environment and to make the world a better place for everyone. The various groups I've been involved in over the decades have been open and collectively run and engaged in the kind of public activities which the public are invited to join in or to replicate for themselves and which are essential if humanity is to progress and survive in the future.
1: These groups challenged the government and powerful companies as well as ruthless and unaccountable elites which were subversive of society and people's real needs.
2: I am proud of the many groups and campaigns I have been involved in and believe that such efforts should be supported, not undermined.
1: One of those campaigns, which is now known to have been infiltrated, was the Torness Alliance anti-nuclear campaign. Having noted that the Inquiry's chair, Sir John Mitting, had been furnished with an education in Trotskyism from Tariq Ali, Morris correspondingly provided Mitting with a primer on anarchism, explaining that some institutions simply cannot be reformed, but must be replaced by genuine democracy. He helpfully provided a list of books for the chair to read in order to better understand anarchist thinking. These included Anarchism, a very short introduction by Colin Ward, Demanding the Impossible by Peter Marshall, and On Anarchism by Noam Chomsky. And just in case Mitting was partial to science fiction, he added Ursula Le Guin's classic The Dispossessed. Morris mentioned one spy cop, Tony Williams, officer HN20, who became treasurer and secretary of the London Workers Group, and whose reporting was no doubt passed on to the security service for blacklisting purposes. Apparently, the SDS told the security service they considered Williams' withdrawal from the field no great loss, as he had not been particularly productive. Morris criticised the inquiry for continuous delays and other problems to do with the publication of documents, some of which were released so late in the day that it was insufficient time for anyone to process them properly. Morris was particularly critical of the police and the inquiry for failing to prioritise the welfare of the spy cops' victims. He made the point that those undercover officers had a duty of care towards the public. The police's sudden championing of privacy and human rights when it comes to applying for their own anonymity is hypocritical and self-serving, and only because they themselves are now being exposed to public scrutiny. Finally, in a slightly surreal moment, Mitting asked Morris which book he would select from his list if he could pick only one. Dave unhesitantly went for Peter Marshall's Demanding the Impossible, although he warned Mitting that it is a weighty tome. Dave Morris's statement was followed by Kirsten Heaven representing the non-state, non-police corps participants through the coordinating group. In previous hearings, we heard shocking evidence of what Heaven described as an unjustifiable, unlawful and profoundly anti-democratic system of surveillance that was fundamentally flawed. Managers are now in the spotlight to answer for that regime. The witness statement disclosed in this inquiry contain a litany of
4: denials and an apparent unwillingness to accept responsibility or admit knowledge on key decision making and events. The managers appear reluctant to give a full and honest explanation of why things went so badly wrong
1: within the SDS in this T1 era and beyond. Basically, if they retain a sense of loyalty to the police, it is deeply misplaced. The last 12 months
4: have seen the public once again demanding answers from the NPS following the exposure of appalling acts of racism, misogyny and corruption. This is an institution which has been found to be institutionally racist, institutionally corrupt and marred by a culture of toxic masculinity, misogyny and sexual harassment.
1: These managers emphasised to their funders at the Home Office how robust their supervision of the undercovers was, yet there was no code of conduct and no formal training.
4: Did the managers conceal these practices from their political masters or was it as the non-state cooperating groups suspect, that the cover-up went on at the highest political
1: level. In order to understand the problems of the SDS, we must understand who controlled the unit and the extent to which the SDS was being directed by the likes of other parts of the wider special branch or the security service, referred to as the, quote, customers. Worryingly, There is disclosed evidence that although they were aware of the problems, the Home Office and senior police officers all turned a blind eye. This meant there was no effective external oversight of the SDS or of the wider special branch. Additionally, both the Home Office and the Security Service knew that the SDS activities of the time were unlawful. This was the reason for shrouding it in secrecy, a secrecy that enabled abuses to flourish. As raised in other opening statements, a problematic definition of subversion was used to justify reporting on pretty much anything and anyone. The security service was able to exercise its influence over the affairs of special branch to shape how the unit operated. Senior police officers were willing to go along with this and ignore the lack of public order benefits of these deployments. Claims that the SDS benefited and improved police's attitudes to public order simply don't stand up to scrutiny. Heaven used the events of Red Lion Square, Southall and Lewisham as examples. The Brixton riots of 1981 demonstrated just how useless the unit was when it came to predicting or preventing public disorder. There was no real attempt to evaluate the, useless, the usefulness of the unit more generally. Annual reports were written in order to justify its existence and support ongoing funding applications. It was the duty of the managers to consider the threat to freedom of speech and democratic principles posed by the STS, and they completely failed to do that. Heaven noted that the STS was managed loosely, and wonders whether the early free and easy style became the blueprint for the future. Despite claims of close supervision, the managers remained blind to the various sexual relationships and the sexist banter of these officers, if we are to believe their witness statements. As to the standardisation of the lengths of deployments to four years, she wants to know if there was a positive and considered managerial decision to extend all deployments well beyond 12 months. It's not rocket
4: science that the longer an undercover officer is deployed, the greater chance there is of collateral intrusion, the development of close personal ties, sexual and intimate relationships, misconduct and abuse of power and trust.
1: The lack of training given to both undercover officers and their managers is concerning. The inquiry must look at what basic police training was at the time to understand how much they knew about legal principles such as entering private property without a search warrant or conduct issues such as sexual relationships while on duty. How did the managers reconcile this with the activities of the SDS? As previously evidenced, there is much reporting which is distressing and inappropriate. Peppered as it is with racism and misogyny nobody pointed it out at the time the SDS managers all now say that these reports were produced for others to comment on evaluate and use however these senior officers were responsible for the unit's work and as such they have a duty to explain this reporting along with the other practices that took place under their watch the SDS as an operation was never lawful These abuses were aided by the Home Office sanctioning and maintaining the unit's secretive existence, leading to a catastrophic failure of policing at the heart of British democracy. The way that the unit acted during this period, 1968 to 1982, paved the way for the abuses committed later. We were told that their abhorrent practices survived and even flourished. Day three also saw the publication of written statements from two civilian witnesses. The Inquiry prepared a short summary of each and read it out loud. We have prepared our own summary. Madeline was deceived into a relationship with an undercover officer known as Vince Miller, Officer HN354. He infiltrated the Walthamstow branch of the Socialist Workers Party from 1976 to 1979. Since then, Vince's real surname, Harvey, has been released. It turns out that he reached the level of superintendent before retiring from the police and went on to a top job as the national director at the National Criminal Intelligence Service. The Undercover Research Group have published a summary of Vincent Harvey's post-undercover career. Madeline had already provided the inquiry with a written statement in February 2021 and gave compelling evidence in the hearings that took place in May of that year. You can also see Charlotte Kilroy's opening statement on her behalf delivered this week. In her statement today Madeline recounted the stressful and excruciating nature of her live witness of giving live witness testimony. Day 3 also saw the publication in full of written witness statements from two civilian witnesses. The inquiry prepared a short summary of each and read it out loud, but we have prepared our own. Madeline was deceived into a relationship with an undercover officer known as Vince Miller. Officer HN354, who infiltrated the Walthamstow branch of the Socialist Workers' Party 1976-1979. to Since then, Vince's real surname, Harvey, has been released. It turns out that he reached the level of superintendent before retiring from the police and then went on to a top job national director at the National Criminal Intelligence Service. The Undercover Research Group have published a summary of Vincent Harvey's post-undercover career, which you can find on their website. Madeline had already provided the inquiry with a written statement in february twenty twenty one, and she gave compelling evidence in the hearings in May in May 2021. You can also see Charlotte Kilroy's statement on her behalf that was delivered this week. In her statement published today, Madeline recounted the stressful and excruciating nature of her live witness testimony at the inquiry in May 2021, where she suffered intrusive questioning. This was so bad that other women From the category H group, suffered significant distress and were unsure if they would be able to continue their participation in the inquiry. This raises serious questions about the treatment of witnesses who are, in effect, sexual abuse survivors. Madeline mentioned Vince sending her a postcard at the end of 1979 after he disappeared from her life, giving her false hope. She now knows that this was a cold and cynical tactic perpetuated on other women as well by undercovers who had disappeared in similar ways. She then recounted how she had generously acceded to the inquiry's request not to demand Harvey's real name in order to protect one of his family members. However, she then found out more about his long career in policing, which involved many public appearances. She was shocked to learn that while Harvey was its director, the National Criminal Intelligence Service had responsibility for the Animal Rights National Index, a forerunner, of another undercover political policing unit, the National Public Order Intelligence Unit, and the National Domestic Extremism Database. Perhaps the most disturbing for Madeline was the revelation that Harvey had been in charge of a child sexual abuse investigation, Operation Pregada, saying she felt physically sick and it turned her stomach to find this out. Madeline says she finds it imperative that Vince Harvey be required to provide evidence relating to his role in later in later tranches of this inquiry. Madeline now feels manipulated into the decision she made not to demand his real name. The inquiry would have been well aware of his later senior policing roles, and it is a disgrace that they allowed this to happen. Madeline has always maintained that the 23 special branch reports in her witness pack are not a complete record of special branch reporting on her. Having now come across a report of a meeting that took place at her home, but does not mention her by name, she believes that Harvey purposefully admitted her name from the list of attendees due to his involvement with her. Madeline now wants to check all 175 reports produced by Harvey, which the inquiry has chosen not to publish, to see if they refer to events that she attended with him. All reports thought to have been authored by this officer should have been disclosed. Julia Pointer also published a witness statement today. Julia is a former member of the Socialist Worker Party and knew both Madeline and Vince Miller back in the day. She has come forward and was able to collaborate her old comrades' accounts at the time. Pointer also knew Phil Cooper, Officer HN155, who infiltrated the Socialist Worker Party from 1979 to 1984 after Vince Miller had ended his deployment. Pointer was shocked at the inquiry held 62 reports mentioning her by name. She described her political trajectory, going from being a disillusioned Labour Party member to joining the SWP in 1975, where her main focus was anti-racism work through her involvement with the Anti-Nazi League. Pointer says that when she attended a trade union conference on undercover policing in November 2019, she saw Vince Miller's name on a document listing all the undercovers that were known, but did not connect this with the man that she knew. If the inquiry had released a photo at that time, she would have been able to identify him and could then have provided evidence to the inquiry at a much earlier date. Two years later, listening to the 2021 hearings, Julia realised that Madeline was an old friend of hers who she had not seen for many years. She was shocked that Harvey was still maintaining that this had only been a one-night stand. It was clear to me at the time that this had been a significant relationship for her. Pointer went on to discuss her interactions with Phil Cooper, who she met through her boyfriend. Cooper and her then-partner set up Wolf Forest anti-nuclear campaign in about 1980, Cooper said in his written statement that he had not formed any significant friendships in the group. However, Poynter recalls that her boyfriend and Phil got on very well and were good friends. The anti-nuclear group would meet at her house and Phil would attend those meetings. My memory of Phil is that he was a real laugh, very much into drinking and having a good time. In fact, Cooper drank heavily and smoked weed reg- regularly. On one occasion, she says, he was so inebriated that he fell off his chair and broke it. Pointer addressed many of the special branch reports mentioning her name. One such report describes a 1981 Socialist Worker Party branch meeting. A fireman contact has offered to help carry out a personal investigation following a spate of racist attacks on Asians in the area. According to the report, the SWP intend to use this information to stir up further unrest within the Asian community in Walthamstow. She does not accept this cynical interpretation, What's been left out of the report is what had actually happened. In early July, petrol had been poured through the door of an Asian household in the area, killing Parveen Khan, aged 28, and her children, Kamran and Aska, aged 11 and 10, and Imran, aged 2. She stated, The community were rightfully angry and we were reaching out and helping to build alliances. It is offensive that the police were spying on us, carrying out this work rather than spending resources identifying the murderers, who, as far as I am aware, have never been caught.
0: That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Um, Maybe you could review the series and please share it with your friends. If you'd like to find out about the other episode in the series, find out anything more about the Spy Cops Inquiry, then check out our website at spycops.info.